0: This is Wilderness and Wildlife, presented by the Gallatin Wildlife Association in Bozeman, Montana. This is a half-hour program featuring commentaries and interviews with wildlife and wilderness advocates relating to the unique natural environment that we enjoy in the wildlands of the West and across America. I'm your host, Jay Shell. Our guest today is Andy Kerr, a self-described Oregon conservationist, Writer, analyst, operative, agitator, strategist, tactician, schmoozer, and raconteur. We might add Kermudgeon to make the list complete. He has worked as the executive director of Oregon Wild, and Andy Kerr describes himself currently as the czar of the Larch Company, which consults on environmental and conservation issues. His website is www.andykerr.net. Welcome, Andy. It's good to have you today, and uh, good to be talking to you from Maine. So, Thank you. Okay, one newspaper called you Oregon's version of the Antichrist, and Time Magazine dubbed you a white-collar terrorist. Uh, why do you deserve those kinds of accolades?
1: Well, over the decades, I started my conservation career during the Ford administration, and um, I was involved in, most notably probably, in the Pacific Northwest Timber Wars, and so I got more than my 15 minutes of allocated fame or infamy, depending on your point of view. During the peak of the Timber Wars, I had a dozen publicists working for me. They, they weren't on my payroll. They were funded by Big Timber, because every entity needs an opponent, and I was their opponent, having grown up in timber country uh, I had family friends that owned lumber mills and logging companies, and worked in the mills and the woods, and so I was a big problem to them because oh. some of them knew me, and they were quite upset that I would call for the end of old-growth logging.
0: So you found yourself being described as a villain across the uh, by the uh, timber industry.
1: Yeah, and from their perspective, I, I certainly was, uh, because I was uh, calling for the end of life as they had known it cutting uh three square miles a week of old growth forests on public lands in Oregon alone.
0: Well the Christian Science Monitor said you're one of the toughest environmental professionals in the Pacific Northwest. The Delonic Wheat said Kerr is entirely unwilling to give an inch when it comes to the states removing old growth forests. So why are you unwilling to compromise?
1: Well compromise happens in the political system and so uh Rather than you know compromising with oneself negotiating with oneself because i've uh I negotiate with the system, so we advocate, we make our case, we see how it is, and you know i, I can make deals and deals have been made with opponents and politicians, and I've sucked those deals, but you know you've got to be careful about trying to negotiate with yourself, and you know if if you don't ask for it, you're not going to get it, so what you want to be is your position is you don't want to be out of the ballpark. But it's okay to be way out in left field. What's uh-huh. out in left field? The power hitter.
0: So, uh, the fire station is a, is an important Oregon industry, uh, and there are a lot of jobs at stake. So, uh, how do you how do you approach that issue uh, when there's so much uh, involved that affects people's lives people's lives? The majority of Oregonians don't know anybody that
1: works in the timber industry. Huh. Okay. That, you, that's been the that case for 20 years. But the, the, the mythology lives on. So there was a lot of old growth logging. There was a lot of logging in the woods and a lot of milling. And there still is. But it's with a fraction of the uh, amount of workers. In 1995, when the Pacific Northwest Forest Plan went into effect, Uh, What's happened since that point is the capacity of the mills to mill wood has gone up 25%, even though the federal cut has gone down 90%. The milling capacity in Oregon went up 90%, while the number of jobs went in half,
0: Mm.
1: because computers and technologies and lasers and all kinds of things mean you don't need as many workers to process with products.
0: Uh, are there still as many companies uh, that are that are in the forestry industry, or has the number been declining over the years?
1: It's declining, and you know, if, at the most important number is the number of workers or the
0: the number of mills.
1: And the number of mills has gone down while milling capacity has gone up. Some mills went out of business uh, with the end of most old growth logging in the Pacific Northwest. Others retooled. To work, use smaller logs. A mm-hmm. few of them retooled to be um, use old-growth logs more efficiently.
0: Uh-huh. So it
1: was like a state-of-the-art, highly efficient whaling station. Mm. It's not sustainable,
0: uh-huh.
1: but that's what a few mills did. A few old-growth mills just are hanging on, and they've been they've been dying uh, as time goes by.
0: Or are there still areas where they can log old-growth forests?
1: The only game that gets away, you know, they've lost their social license
0: to log old-growth forests and
1: mature old-growth forests. But they still get some big logs occasionally with uh, under the guise of ecological restoration thinning where the agency is just going nuts, cutting huge... Large trees, or they get it after a salvage after a forest fire. If you can get away with that. But just to get the cutout, the agency is rarely putting up old growth trees to be logged. There's some excuse. There's salvage after a fire or a windstorm, or the excuse of because of fire suppression, there's too many trees on site and they need to be thinned. And then, well, you, know, you should be thinning the small trees, but they aren't as profitable,
0: so they want to thin the large trees. So uh, how did you go about waging your effort to uh, control deforestation in old-growth areas? Well, you know, at the time, at the peak, I, I started in 1976, and
1: by 1989, the cut had got to the point that they were clear-cutting three square miles a week of ancient forests in Oregon alone. One log truck every six minutes, 24-7, off the mountain of the National mm-hmm. Forest, for example. So a massive, massive amount of logging and that is not an issue that could be resolved locally so we consciously chose to nationalize the issue these are national forests owned by all the american people and when the american people heard what was happening to them they were upset and so through a combination of litigation public advocacy etc we made a big political stink in oregon and we were not popular we split the state you know our peculiar institution in the late 1980s was cutting old-growth forests. And so expecting the congressional delegation in Oregon to deal rationally with the end of that would be like expecting the Mississippi delegation to deal rationally with the end of their peculiar institution of segregation at the end of the 1950s. You know, the politics just weren't there. It had to be national attention drawn to these national forests.
0: Sir, so your approach was largely to approach Congress instead of. How much did you have to work with the Oregon legislature uh, to deal with? The legislature had no real role in
1: this force because they don't own the national forest. So, so, but the but the Oregon congressional delegation had a huge role, and Senator Hatfield, Mark Hatfield, Republican, I'll call him a pacifist timber beast. In other words, he was very anti-war, but he was at war with the forests in the Pacific Northwest, because that's the politics of the time. And he was often the chair of the Appropriations Committee, and he would fund the Forest Service and the Bureau of Land Management. Mm -hmm. Very high logging levels. And so what we learned is the best way to fight a United States senator is with another United States senator. So by nationalizing the issue... Other senators became concerned and started to check Hatfield's ability to send unlimited amounts of money. We also went to court and sued over violations of the Endangered Species Act, or the National Forest Management Act, or the National Environmental Policy Act, and those those had some success.
0: Mm. So um, in a comparative sense, how much of Oregon's forests are privately owned versus the amount that are owned by the federal government? Well, in Oregon, in general, over half of Oregon
1: is public lands, federal public lands around fifty two percent i don 't remember the figures out hand, but you know we need to be careful here when we say forest land because are we talking acres or are we talking productive timber capacity? What are we looking at these forest lands for? The timber industry owns both private industrial owners, large private industrial owners, and small non industrial private landowners. Own the most productive capacity. You know, the national forests are the lands that nobody wanted. there tend to be higher elevation, lower productivity growing forests. There are some exceptions, but that's generally the case. So um most, and there's a little bit of state land, uh, but most, uh, on an area basis, you would have to say that forests are federal in Oregon on a productivity basis in terms of ability to crank out wood growth. Those are on private lands and that is a smaller amount of the acreage, but it isn't about acres to the timber industry actually.
0: So do you feel that this is an ongoing effort that you continually have to call companies to task or uh, do you feel you're largely, your work is largely accomplished?
1: Um. It's a constant struggle, but I I would say strategically look stepping back from it. Mm -hmm. um, It is a question of mopping up the pockets of resistance. It is most mills don't cut old-growth forests anymore. The majority of mills in Oregon do not cut any old-growth forests. There are about nine of 35 that do. They are the demand for it, these large trees, mature and large trees. And so You know, there's an ongoing fight, there was a fight, there's still an ongoing fight over what are public lands for? Are they to produce logs? Well, historically, they have been, but they've also had a statutory mandate to produce clean water and wildlife habitat and recreation and other things. And with the climate crisis, you know, one of the most important things we can do is remove excess carbon in the air already, carbon dioxide by putting it back in forests and that the best way to do that is not plant trees would take a long time to store any carbon the best way is to let the trees grow that we have it's called proforestation mm-hmm. and let them continue to grow old that's the most important thing we could do in fact senator biden recently issued an executive order that directs uh, the forest service and the bureau of land management to conserve all mature and old-growth forests on federal public lands. So that, you know, that executive order hasn't been op- operationalized yet, but we are optimistic that that could be the final protection for these forests.
0: Yeah, and President Biden recently had a press conference in which he announced that he he was making the effort to uh, protect old-growth forests as well.
1: <laughs> yeah, the press conference in Seattle during Earth Day. That's what I was referring to. Yes.
0: So, do you work with others, or have you largely worked on your own, approaching legislators?
1: Nobody's successful on their own, so I, I work with others. I work with—I have
0: clients, uh,
1: organizations, and uh, stuff that I work with on projects and things like that. And and often my role these days is as a freelance environmental agitator. Is I, I work on particular projects. I help organizations that want to save certain things or advance certain policies, and uh, so I, I serve as an advisor. And But, you know, it's their members pushing on members of their congressional delegation mm-hmm. that make a difference.
0: Are your clients mostly uh, non-governmental organizations?
1: Yes, that work on various public lands conservation issues, primarily in the American West, mostly in Oregon.
0: And what's the complexity of the Old Grove Forest System?
1: Well, you know, originally, the mythology,
0: I say originally, meaning the 1940s,
1: 50s, the mythology was that old growth forests were quote-unquote biological deserts. Mm -hmm. Well, eventually scientists looked at it and found just, the opposite, the highest levels of biological diversity, species composition, species diversity, the structure. These forests are different and the, the temperate forests of the Pacific and Northwest are pretty unique. They're the, they store more carbon. They have more biomass than most any other forests in the world, including tropical forests. So there's more acres of tropical forest, so they have more carbon and more biomass. But uh, on a per-acre basis, a dense old-growth forest in the Pacific Northwest is the largest accumulation of above-ground biomass and carbon you can find in any ecosystem. That also, another way to look at that is they were clear old-growth logs that number one peelers make a lot of money off of. So that's been the historical rub. And, uh, you know... As the nation urbanizes, as the West continues to urbanize. The public wants their national forests to be managed for things other than timber production, and that's the rub. There's a few. There's these few mills left, et cetera. And that's the rub. That's the tension. But on, on a macro basis, you know, vast majority of the American people want these last mature old-growth forests conserved for this and future generations.
0: Have hunting organizations been important in uh, the effort to save old-growth forests?
1: No, no, almost not players.
0: There are some hunting organizations
1: that I think take a short-term view. Uh, they will see, if you put a clear cut in an old-growth forest, that's good seasonal deer and elk habitat, and they like that. Mm. You go out and see them and shoot them. It's hard to hunt in an old-growth forest. You can't get a clean shot. But thermal cover for elk... For example, they need that old growth forest, which is much warmer in the winter or cooler in the summer. So, um, hunters also, on a national basis, uh, for example, the Rough Grouse Society, they have bought into clear cutting makes great rough grouse habitat. And, you know, they have, as an organization, kind of a negative attitude towards old growth forests. It's kind of disturbing. I think we have plenty. Around so there isn't have to be a, you don't have to clear cut old growth to have some grouse. It's just plenty of grouse,
0: and they have plenty. So, what was it originally that it motivated you to take on this uh, this effort to save old growth forests?
1: Well, actually, it was in 1970. I was a sophomore in uh, high school on Reserve Day, and mm-hmm. um, there was actually about the same time a demonstration in. Uh, Eugene, in front of the Forest Service headquarters, Willamette National Forest Headquarters. And people were demonstrating, not against the Vietnam War, which was often the case at that time, but against, but for saving the French Bead Valley, for returning this low elevation, old, mature, old, for, older forest to the Three Sisters Wilderness, from which the Forest Service had removed it because they wanted to clear-cut it. And that became quite a cause. And I remember thinking at a time, as a sophomore in high school, wow, what a novel idea. Part of the National Forest that you don't Mm log. Because I grew up on on the Cottage Grove Ranger District, the Umpqua National Forest, and they were clear-cut, and they were logging, and that's kind of what I thought National Forests were for, but I eventually took a larger view, and I went off to Oregon State University and dropped out at the end of my junior year to uh, try to save... Forest Service, wilderness areas, making wilderness. And eventually that turned into advocacy for old-growth forests, and that's kind of what started it.
0: Mm-hmm. Did concern for wildlife play a yeah. role?
1: Oh, absolutely. And I, I think, you know, we need to take a broad view of wildlife. And, uh, you know, the indicator species of all indicator species for old-growth forests in the Pacific Northwest has been the northern spotted owl. The northern spotted owl is very dependent upon old-growth forest habitat. You won't find spotted owls in younger, managed forests. You won't find them in clear-cuts, and despite the death of the time, you won't find them in the Walmart parking lot. So a lot of myths, fake news has gone around on the spotted owls. But the spotted owl, you know, there's, there's thousands of species, endemic species, species not named to science, that... Are found in old growth forests. So there are solitude dependent species, species that uh, specialize in the complex canopy at the top. Um, so there's, you know, these are incredibly rich, biologically diverse forests with all kinds of wildlife in them. And the fight over the spotted owl has, you know, it was a symbol,
0: it was symbolic the importance of these old growth forests. Mm-hmm. So the work that you have done, I assume that it impacts Washington and Idaho and Montana uh, and other Rocky Mountain states as well, because you've been working at the congressional level.
1: Yeah, the, um, the fight over the national forest, the cutting levels first dropped on the Pacific Northwest. Western Northwest, the range of the spotted owl, we had great legal theories and victories there. There's also, that caused a new policy on the east side forests of Oregon and Washington, meaning not the spotted owl forests in Oregon and Washington. And then that has gone into the west and across the nation. So, you know, overall, the cut levels are down from historic highs on the national forest, more so in the Pacific Northwest than elsewhere. And I've also worked on uh, livestock grazing issues across the West and all the 11 Western states and more. I've been an advocate of congressional legislation that authorizes the voluntary relinquishment by the permittee of their grazing permit on federal land. Why would they do that? Well, because a third party like a conservation organization or a hunting or fishing group or something, something like that, will pay that rancher to waive their federal permit back to the federal government. And then there would be no more grazing on that a lot. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, any forage that goes through a cow is not available for native wildlife, whether that's elk, pronghorn, or butterflies, or sage grout.
0: All right, the Salt Lake Tribune called you. Said you had been a no, long been a burr on the side of the cattle industry.
1: So was- well, actually, you know, I mean, that's, it's kind of funny. I mean, you know, you, you take you take the press that you get, um, but it's I'm actually hopeful. Not that they think so necessarily at the time, but you basically the average age of a federal grazing permittee is well over seventy. They have kids that ran away thirty five, forty years ago, who are not going to come back and take over the ranch. So you have some ranchers who are their their uh, ranch on have public land grazing permits. Their business model for surviving in the future is to buy out their neighbors' grazing permits, if not their ranches, when they go broke. So when you have to talk about acres for cow rather than cows per acre, you know it's a lifestyle choice. and And so you know the average private grazing land in the American East is 83 three times more productive than the average grazing land on BLM lands in Nevada. It's just an extraordinary difference. And so what I propose is that we equitably end livestock grazing voluntarily by compensating permittees Hmm. for waiving their permits back to the federal government. And you can reallocate that forage to watershed and wildlife and carbon sequestration and, uh, and recreation and other public values. And it would be an equitable end to a very minor part of the nation's beef supply. It's only 1.5% of the nation's forage and feed come from federal public lands for cattle and sheep. And that amount of forage is easily available on private lands elsewhere. And in fact, from a carbon standpoint, because this is low-grade feed on the public lands, the Carbon emissions, mainly methane belching from cows, uh, are much higher from livestock that are grazed on public lands than livestock that are grazed on private lands. So there's all kinds. Of, you look at you look at voluntary grazing permit buyout, and it's, it's ecologically uh, essential. It's economically rational. It's fiscally prudent. It's socially just, and it's politically pragmatic. So let's just do that, and it's, it's an option rather than having fights in in the courts and in Congress about the amount of grazing on public land.
0: Uh You do a lot of writing uh, as well as speaking engagements. Uh, How many books and articles have you written?
1: Well, I've written two books. Uh, One was Oregon Desert Guide, 73 Hikes by the Mountaineers. It's kind of, you can buy it on Amazon pretty cheap. It's also available on my website if you want to look at it. Um, The Oregon Natural Desert Association has superseded that book with my blessing by they basically have an online uh hiking guide to the oregon desert now which is up-to-date and for interactive and user-friendly and uh user contributions so it's really really nice but i also wrote a book called oregon wild endangered forest wilderness which basically makes the case for the remaining forest service and bureau of land management forest and roadless areas to make them wilderness so I have a third book that I'm working on. I've been working on it for 20 years, obviously not that successfully or seriously. But it's the working title is Beyond Wood, the case for forests and against wood products. And it basically it makes the argument that we can get well over uh, three-quarters of all the construction and paper products that we now make from tree flesh. We can get that from agricultural waste products and intentional agriculture fibers like hemp and other other things and so you know these forests are just on all ownerships you know the highest and best use of forests is not logging the most common use of forests is logging because the market doesn't recognize the values of forests other than if you want to cut the tree, if a landowner owns a forest and wants to make money off that forest, basically the only thing they can do is cut it down and sell the logs. Right. But the value to society of those forests are, in terms of ecosystem service values, wa- watershed values, etc., are immense, multiple times what the value is for raw materials. Mm-hmm. And so we have a market failure. And so I propose that, you know, with a tax or gas tax or whatever, we use that and dedicate it to buy forest lands from private owners to reconvert private timberlands to be, again, the public forest lands, which, you know, uh, you would have all this carbon sequestration, you would have much more wildlife habitat, you would have better water quality, and it would make farming more sustainable because There's too much and too few commodity crops, corn, wheat, and soybeans. They could grow hemp as a fiber that's particularly strong and long. They can blend in with agricultural waste fibers, and you can make construction and paper products that are just as good, if not better, than what we're getting now from tree flesh.
0: Uh, You also publish large, large occasional papers, so tell us about those.
1: Well, I, on my website, you'll, use something, and so if there's a particular subject on, uh, that I will go deep into and, and do a pretty deep dive into in terms of information, gathering information relevant to the topic and then, uh, making policy recommendations. So, you know, most of my writing today is every fortnight, uh, two weeks. I generally publish, post to my public lands blog and I, you know, it's heavy on Oregon, but it, it looks at public lands issues uh, throughout the country. And it's my, you know, sometimes humorous, usually acerbic, uh, some think insightful, others don't, uh, take on public land issues. And so that's available if people want to subscribe to it by going to my website, net, and you can see it on the front page, a place to subscribe.
0: And the large company is you as a consultant. Is that right?
1: The large company has one staff person in two offices. So I split my time between Hancock, Maine, and Ashland, Oregon.
0: Uh-huh. And
1: I, uh, the staff meetings are very cordial. Well, there's sometimes disagreement with with me. So what I do is I have I have some benefactors that support me. I also have clients that I do work for. So I do. I'm a freelance environmental agitator mm-hmm. that. Um, sometimes target issues or, or or things. You know, I, I uh, helped develop the modern version of voluntary grazing permit tieout of which there's been oh, well over a half dozen bills on site-specific areas that have passed Congress, and there is legislation in Congress to apply that concept nationally. And organizations like Western Watersheds and others are carrying most of the water on that legislative effort. So... You know, I helped get it started. I continue to work with Western Watershed's uh, advisory role, and so it's fun.
0: Great. Well, Andy, we've exhausted our time, but uh, I really want to thank you very much for talking to us about Old growth Forests and about the work you do. Uh, All right. Well, thank you for having me. I hope people check in on your website because it's uh, both entertaining as well as, as well as very informative. Thanks again. Our guest today is Andy Kerr, Oregon conservationist who spent his adult life working to save old-growth forests in the Pacific Northwest. His website is andykerr.net, where you may subscribe to his fortnightly public lands blog. This has been Wilderness and Wildlife, a presentation of the Gallatin Wildlife Association in Bozeman, Montana. To hear more of these half-hour interviews, go online to jswilderness.com and see additional features of our website. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Jay Shell.